Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a find, catch me a catch. Well, we find a story today of Ruth and Boaz. The sparks are still flying. The romance is on. We find a third person involved in the relationship. Not just God, but Naomi, who sort of takes the position of being a matchmaker. In verse 1, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight in the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. You shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. There are dating services around this country. Uh, Some of them are computerized. That is, you tell the computer what you are looking for and about your own interests, and the computer will supposedly find those like interests and match you together. I heard of a young woman who did this. She went to a computer dating service, and she was very precise and particular about the kind of date she wanted. Uh, She wanted somebody who was small, somebody who preferred formal dress, formal attire, and loved water sports. And the computer followed what she wanted to the letter and sent her a penguin. (laughs) Now, this story, God is involved. We've already seen that through Providence last week. But on the human side, Naomi is playing a part. And I suppose God can use anything He wants to bring people together. Whether it's a computer service or a very active mother-in-law, doesn't really matter. God can still be the overarching one pulling the strings. It's a love story. And today we look at true love, mature love, responsible love. What's the difference between what the world says love is and what the Bible says love is? What's the difference between infatuation and true love? Well, there's a big difference. The world has its own idea, and some celebrities were asked their definition of love. You want to hear the profound insights of the celebrities of Hollywood, what love is? One said, love is a ticklish sensation around the heart that can't be scratched. Untouched. Another person says, love is like a vaccination. When it takes hold of you, you don't have to be told about it. Another person says, love makes a fellow feel funny and act stupid. Love is very misconstrued in our society today. First of all, we use the same term to mean a lot of different things and we don't really think about the overlap. Somebody will say, I love pizza. Another person will use the same term about their spouse. I love my wife. Somebody will talk about people making love. And sometimes we have no idea what the real meaning of the word is. Back in 1875, the longest love letter ever recorded, ever written, was written by Marcel Delacour 
to his sweetheart, Magdalene Villalore. He wrote, I love you, 1,875,000 times in a single letter. What he was doing is he was taking the date, 1875, and taking the years uh, times a thousand and wrote, I love you, 1,875,000 times. Oh, that's love. Well, he hired somebody to do it. (laughs) The longest kiss ever recorded was by a young couple. He was 19, she was 16. They were from Hanover, West Germany. And they locked lips for 105 minutes and 48 seconds until they were about to pass out. Now, let's compare all of that with a passage of Scripture that brings us down to earth and we'll see how it's exemplified in this story. It's a passage that's probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible, certainly the famous love passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So let's turn there. And let's read it together, and then we'll make reference to it as we go through this third chapter of Ruth. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, and have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries, and have all knowledge, and though I could have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love... I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. You say, my goodness, how could anyone do any of those things without a huge amount of love? Well, listen to the definition now. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And now that first portion of the eighth verse, love never fails. Many people love at their tongue's end, the godly love at their finger's end. 1 John tells us in the fourth chapter, Children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth, with a mature, responsible kind of a love. We see that in this chapter. And this morning we're going to look at the matchmaker, Naomi, the Moabitess, Ruth, and the man of the house, Boaz. We see that Naomi had a love for Ruth that was a very mature love. She was concerned with her welfare, rather than her own singular welfare. We see that Ruth demonstrates a love for her mother-in-law and for her God by the way she responds. And finally, we see Boaz loving his relatives in general, his dead relative Elimelech, Ruth, and Naomi. Beautiful example of mature love. Let's look then at the matchmaker. The first four verses of Ruth chapter 3, we've already read. Look at verse 1. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Ruth is concerned, excuse me, Naomi is concerned about Ruth. She's concerned that this young widow needs a husband and doesn't have one. 
And the word she uses, if you have an old version or some other versions besides this one, mine says security. Other versions say rest. Shall I not seek rest for you? This version, shall I not seek security for you? The Hebrew term is manoach. And it speaks of the beautiful security of rest and assurance that comes in a marriage relationship. It's a beautiful description of marriage. The term means mutual love, acceptance, and security, or a quiet, settled spot that comes in a relationship of marriage. Now that is God's intention for marriage, that you come to a quiet, secure, settled, restful spot because of your relationship with that other person. That's a great description of marriage, but there are few people who really experience that. In fact, today, fewer and fewer people are willing to get married. Uh, Marriage is occurring at older ages rather than younger ages. People think, why spoil a good thing? Why get married and ruin the whole thing? The little girl in her class heard for the first time the adventures of Snow White. She was so excited that she wanted to retell the story to her mother when she got home and she told her mom the story of this Prince Charming and Snow White and how he got off of his white horse and kissed her back to life. And little Susie says, Mommy, do you know what happened next? Mommy said, I sure do. And they lived happily ever after. Susie said, no, with a frown. They got married. Well, that's not God's intention to look at marriage that way. Marriage and God's intention was to be a secure, restful, mutual acceptance. We see, though, by this statement in these verses, that she is loving rather than selfish. She's not thinking of herself, she's thinking of Ruth. She knows that Ruth is young, that there's a long time between this harvest and the next harvest. Why waste time? Better to get hitched than to stay a poor single widow. And so she, in her mind, is coming up with this really God-given scheme at this point. Now, I think that Naomi could have easily prevented Ruth from getting married. After all, Ruth has been providing for her. Why let her go? She's working for me. I've got a good thing going. And she could have said, hey, I'm not going to let you go. No, you shouldn't marry that fellow. Get away from him. I'm not married and nobody's courting me. Uh, What about my needs? She could have said. But she didn't. She thought, what about your needs? Now, I think that Naomi had been scoping Boaz out for some time. I think ever since he came on the scene and Ruth said, I've been gleaning in a guy named Boaz's field. It's like, bing. And she started thinking. So she's watching how this guy's treating her. What he does. And I think she's very impressed. Now, that's Naomi's love. Compare that with what we just read. I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians 13.4 Love suffers long, is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. And in verse 5, love does not seek its own. Allow me to read that to you in, I think, a colorful translation, the Phillips translation. Love looks for ways of being constructive. It is not possessive. It is neither anxious to impress, nor does it cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. Love does not pursue selfish advantage. Rather than saying, give me, what about me? Love says, let me give you, what about you? And so factor number one in mature love is that it is others-oriented. 
true, mature, responsible, 1 Corinthians type love is love that is others oriented. This is not a new principle. Jesus says, as I have loved you, you ought to love one another. He gave us that commandment. And then Paul the Apostle wrote something that is very contrary to modern culture. When he wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2, he said, In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Boy, there's a lot of talk about self-image, self-esteem, self-this, self-that. It says, Let each other esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. One of the things that makes love mature love is that it is not selfish. Notice how practical Naomi is at the same time. She's concerned about Ruth. There's this guy named Boaz. And she gets very practical in verse 3. Therefore, wash yourself. Take a nice bath, Ruth. Anoint yourself. Put on that beautiful perfume, midnight in Moab, or whatever you've got. (laughs) Put on your best garment. And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be, when he lies down, you shall notice the place where he lies, uncover his feet. We'll talk about that in a minute. Lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. Loosely translated, look like a knockout, and at the right time, propose to him. It was very acceptable for a woman to do that in that time. Put on the perfume. Look great, put on your best garments, and go down. Now, we know outward beauty is not everything. But, Ruth, you're going to make an impression. Make the right one, and look good. There's nothing wrong with making that good impression. Very, very practical. You may have heard about the guy who fell in love with the opera singer. He was in love with her. He had never really really spent much time with her. In fact, he never really met her. He had only seen her from afar through binoculars from the third balcony. He thought, though, oh, man, I could live happily ever after married to a voice like that. What a beautiful soprano she had. He didn't care that she was considerably older than he was, nor that she walked with a limp. And so he proposed to that lady and... uh, He thought, you know, her soprano voice will take us through anything that we go through. After a hasty marriage ceremony, uh, they went away together for their honeymoon. And uh, the first night together, as she was preparing for that night, as he watched, his chin dropped to his chest. As she took out her glass eye, put it in the container by the bedstand, took off her wig and her false eyelashes tore out her dentures, put them in the bathroom, unstrapped her artificial leg with a big smile as she took off the glasses that hid the hearing aid behind her ears. He was stunned and he said, My goodness, woman, sing, sing, sing. Well, her voice certainly made an impression. And Ruth was to make an impression. Wash yourself, put on your best garments, go down at the right time. Now, verse 5, let's turn over now to the Moabitess, Ruth. And she said to her, I don't know why I even shared that story. I don't even know if it has anything to do with this, but I just (laughs) shared it. Ruth, in verse 5, she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. What a response. What a passive, seemingly, response. 
She went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down and uh, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came softly, that is quietly, so nobody would hear, uncovered his feet and lay down. Now I'm sure that Ruth was getting a little bit excited at this prospect. There's her mother-in-law coming up with this scheme and she's probably giddy and excited about doing this. However, it took a lot of love for Naomi to follow through with this and a lot of guts to make yourself vulnerable like this. To come to a place where these professional men were sleeping to wake somebody up and to say, Marry me. Very, very vulnerable position. Very difficult to do. I remember when Lenya asked me to marry her, it was... No, I'm just kidding. She never did that. But it was difficult for Ruth to do this. Ruth is a new believer. She hasn't been following the God of Israel long. She's been in Moab. She's been following Chemosh, the false god of Moab. And now, it's probably been six weeks, maybe at the most, she has made a commitment to God, made a commitment to Naomi. Where you go, I'll go. You lead, I'll follow. Your God will be my God. Now Naomi says, all right, Look good. Go down to the threshing floor. Wake the guy up by uncovering his feet. And he'll tell you what you ought to do. The threshing floors were stone slabs of bedrock, usually elevated from the fields. They were up on mountaintops or hilltops. And the harvested grain, the barley, the wheat, was taken to the threshing floor. It was beaten. They would take uh, ox carts or stones and roll it over them. Uh, If you go to India today or other Asian cultures, they take the wheat and pile it in the streets so that the cars run over it and the trucks run over it and it separates the chaff from the grain itself. Then in the afternoon, they would take and winnow it. They would toss it up in the air and the prevailing winds would take the chaff and blow it away and only the grain would be left. Then they would take the grain, pile it up, because it would be several days, and they would sleep on the threshing floor, their head facing the grain pile, their feet sticking out, sort of in a spoked circumference around that pile. They were keeping watch over it, basically, so the thieves or marauders wouldn't come in. So, verse 9, she comes in and and proposes, It happened at midnight that the man, verse 8, was startled and turned himself, and there's a woman lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant, Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. At night, when they would sleep, they'd put a cloak or a cover over themselves to keep themselves warm, to keep off the chill. You uncover somebody's feet, it's like an alarm clock. They're not going to wake up immediately, but eventually their feet are going to get cold, they're going to move a little bit. And he noticed, my feet are cold. And uh, he looked down, and there's Ruth lying sort of perpendicularly, like a T, lying at his feet. Either that or her feet were touching his feet. But she was lying down at the feet, and she goes, Who are you? I'm Ruth. (laughs) And you're my relative. And literally in the Hebrew, spread your garment over me. In other words, place your protective custody over me that I could be your wife. That was the implication of that. Ruth is separated unto God and to God's purposes. So far she's been obeying the word of God and claiming the promises of God. I mean, think about it. All this ritual of gleaning in the fields, all of this ritual about 
the lever at marriage, having a, a near kinsman, a relative, get married to you for the production of children. That's all foreign to her. But she did it. She came and she's gleaning. She's following the maidservants of Boaz. She's out in the fields like the law commanded the poor to do. Naomi, knowing the law of God in Deuteronomy 25, tells it to Ruth. Ruth follows through. Everything that Naomi said, Ruth did. Her commitment to God was not a spur of the moment. It was a life change. It was a life change. As Martin Luther put it, it was a living, daring confidence in God's grace. And so, she obeyed the word of God by going to the fields. She obeyed the word of God by going to her kinsmen. And now she's claiming a promise of the word of God, i.e. claiming this guy as her husband. I think there's a beautiful example in that. Oftentimes as Christians, we do one or the other rather than both. A lot of times we claim the promises without obeying the conditions that precede the promise. We just grab a scripture, I claim this, I claim that, instead of obeying the conditions. She obeyed the scripture. Then we can make another mistake. We can obey and try to please God, but never claim by faith the promises that God has for those who keep the conditions. And she did both. Now she's been through a lot of heartache. Her first husband died. She's made a long journey. But she still has hope in her heart. And she's willing to make this move. Now, keep that in mind. Let me refer you back to 1 Corinthians 13. I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's Ruth. Listen to the Phillips translation of that. Love knows no limits to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can outlast anything. Here's Ruth, vulnerable to Boaz, coming in stealth to the floor. He could have said, what are you doing here? Get out of here. I'm not interested. He could have woken up his friends. Look at this. She snuck here at night and embarrassed her, but he didn't do that. She was vulnerable. She took a risk. And love that is mature, true love, always will be willing to take a risk. If you want to love, you're going to get hurt sometime. And you have to be willing to take that risk and get hurt. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Ruth became very vulnerable in obedience to Naomi and in deference to the law of God. She trusted God and God's plan. Mature love. Now there's another factor I want to bring up here. Factor number two. True love is fostered. It is produced in an atmosphere of communication. Did you notice from the beginning of the book that every little thing in life, Naomi and Ruth will converse freely about. They're not holding anything back. 
Uh, every day when Ruth comes from the field, she tells all of the details. This is what happened. This is who I met. This is what he said. This is what I said. Instead of saying, I'm home now. I'm going to my room. Don't bother me. She shared freely in fellowship with Naomi. And Naomi shared everything with Ruth. Even her scheme to get her married. You'd think, oh, certainly she's going to keep that secret. Just sort of work behind. No. She says, listen, I've got a plan. I was thinking, you should be married. And I know just the guy and you're just the girl. And tells her the whole scheme. They hold nothing back. In any relationship, for it to survive, for it to mature into that kind of love, there must be an open communication. And as you all know, probably, or you should know, the number one problem in marriages today is lack of meaningful communication. Lives get busy. We cram them full of other things, and pretty soon there are people who are living under the same roof, but they are virtually strangers. They haven't fostered that love by communication. Naomi and Ruth are communicating, sharing each other's heart. Mature love is fostered in an atmosphere of communication. Okay, we have seen the matchmaker Naomi, the Moabitess Ruth. Let's look at the man of the house, who eventually is Boaz. Verse 8, it happened at midnight. Now picture his response. The man was startled, turned himself, and there was a woman lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? She answered, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you're a close relative. And then he said, Wow. No, he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. For you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. In other words, yes, I do. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. It is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night and in the morning. It shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. If he doesn't want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. In other words, you betcha. I'd love to do it. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning. She arose before no one could recognize, or one could recognize another. And he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it up. When she held it up, he measured six ephahs of barley, laid it on her. She went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Now, it's more than just duty that moves Boaz to respond this way. I think he's genuinely taken by her. I think his emotions are involved. I think Boaz is in love with Ruth. Duty will make you do things well. Love will make you do things beautifully. Oh, yeah, I'll do it. Hey, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of your mother-in-law. In fact, give her some grain. There's somebody that's closer. He might take you. I'm willing to wait for that, but if not, as the Lord lives, I'll be around. 
There was once a professor who wrote a very scholarly work on love. Only one problem, he'd never been in love. Wrote a great volume all about love and falling in love and commitment. He'd never been in love. And he took his volume to a typist to have her prepare it for the publisher. She was a beautiful young girl and when their eyes met, something happened that he hadn't written about in his book. Love. He was happier in five minutes with true love in his heart than he had been for 30 years with love just in his head. And I think that when Boaz and Ruth met, in fact, by tracing his responses throughout the book, it's obvious that he's impressed with her. He's taken by her. He's attracted to her. And he's following through with his commitment. Now, some people in reading what we just read feel that Boaz had sexual relations with Ruth that night. And he said, yeah, lie down. Stay here the night. Nothing could be further from the truth. You'd have to willingly distort the text to think that they had some kind of premarital sexual arrangement. The word that is used, spend the night, is simply the Hebrew word loon, which means pass the time. If a sexual connotation was involved, a different word would be used, sakab, but it's not used here. Just loon, just stay here, right where you're at, and pass the time. In fact, I think this is a demonstration of true love. Because where is she lying? At his feet, not at his side. He didn't say, come up here, baby, let me snuggle you tonight. Warm your man up. He didn't say that. And that brings us really to our third factor of mature love. Mature, responsible love is willing to show self-restraint. Self-restraint. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 13 says. Love does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Again, the J.B. Phillips translation. Love has good manners. And love does not pursue selfish advantage. So girls, if you ever date a guy who tries to bring you physically too close too soon and says, oh... Oh yeah, let's let's keep it up and I love you too much. Let's let's Hey, listen. Slug him. No, I'm just kidding. Well, actually. If he says, "I can't wait because I love you too much," he's a liar. Let me translate what he means. I love me too much to wait. I want gratification now and I am not willing to be patient. The Bible says if it's true love, it will be patient. It will wait. A young woman wrote me a letter not too long ago about a relationship she was sure was from God. She met a man and she wrote and she said, Unfortunately, we gave in to our desires in the heat of passion. We knew it was wrong, but we justified it by saying, We're truly in love and we would one day be married. After all, how could the Lord condemn true love? We were so wrong and we damaged a beautiful thing. So love was willing to show self-restraint. Stay here. Lie down right where you're at until morning. At my feet. Where you started with a proposal. Then I want you to notice something else in verse 14. Ruth is concerned about what people might think. And she, in verse 14, lay at his feet until morning. She arose before one could recognize another. It's still dark. And then he said... 
Do not let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. She was a foreigner. She was a slave. This could be embarrassing to wake up. All the other guys, what are you doing here? Well, I proposed to him last night. She gets up. Private conversation took place that night between her and Boaz. And she's out of there. He senses her uneasiness. And so he says, fine. Let it be. We, we won't say a word about this. Let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He wanted to save her from embarrassment. He knew the seamy side of human nature, that people like to talk, that people will make up rumors, that maybe she'd be on the front of National Enquirer or something like that. And to save her the embarrassment, he just says, I understand that you're sensitive in this issue. We'll solve it before it can ever happen. That's beautiful. There was a woman who went into a fabric store. And she ordered several yards of noisy, rustling, white material. The guy said, oh, I've got some of it. How much do you need? And she told him, and he was curious. And he said, why do you want all this noisy, rustling, white material? What's it for? She said, for my wedding dress. You see, my fiancé is blind, and when I walk down the aisle, I want him to know when I'm at the altar so he doesn't get embarrassed. He would hear the sound because he couldn't see her. Beautiful, beautiful act of love. He senses her uneasiness and says, Don't worry, I won't say anything. Also look in verse 15 through 18. He's concerned not only for this marriage, but for the mother-in-law, Naomi. He says, Bring me your shawl. Here, here's six aphas of grain. Go take it to her. And in verse 17, For he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. In other words... He is saying, your mother-in-law is not an inconvenience to me. She's part of the deal. I understand what she's gone through. She went out full. She's come back empty. She's now poor. She's lost everything because of her husband's disobedience. And I know that there's a relation that you guys have. And in giving her this, it is like a token. It is a pledge. I'm going to redeem not only you, but since she's part of it and she's part of the land deal, she'll be taken care of as well. It's that all-inclusive, kind kind of love, knowing that she was a broken woman. It reminds me of what Keith Miller wrote, and I have it here to read to you. He said, the way to love someone is to lightly run your finger over that person's soul until you find a crack and then gently pour your love into that crack. And he did that for Naomi, broken by the past, broken by sin. He found the crack, poured his love into it, saying, I will take care of her as well. This is true love. This is 1 Corinthians type of love. This is not, well, love is a ticklish sensation. They can't be scratched. Now, this is a mature, godly, giving love. It's others-oriented. It is birthed and bathed in an atmosphere of communication. It exercises personal restraint, and it is inclusive. Now, I want to read 1 Corinthians 13 all over again, but I'm going to change the words. I'm going to take the word love out. And I'm going to insert the word Jesus. I'm just going to read it to you, because God is love, and see how perfectly it fits. I'll tell you why I'm doing this. Because some of you today have a deep fear that you will never be able to experience this kind of love. That somebody would love you unconditionally that much. Well, even if you don't have a human in your life, there is a God who loves you 
infinitely. Listen to what it says. Jesus suffers long, and he is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself. He is not puffed up. He does not behave rudely, nor does he seek his own. He is not provoked. He thinks no evil. Jesus does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. He endures all things. Jesus never fails. Does that fit perfectly? Sometimes you might want to do an experiment. Try your name there. You'll make it a couple sentences and go, it just, it doesn't work. But because of his love that we experience, we can show love to others. That is the hallmark of the Christian. It's the hardest lesson to learn, but it's the pinnacle of our relationship with others. That we love one another as he loved us. I read that because some of you need to begin where love begins. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Some need to experience the unconditional forgiving love of a Savior. And you need to give your life to Jesus Christ today. That his love would penetrate your life, enabling you to love others. Let's pray. Father, as we examine this beautiful, sublime example of these three people who showed mature, selfless love, we consider also the greatest act of love, the cross, the Savior dying for us. And I pray, Father, that, first of all, if there are those who have come this morning and they don't know Jesus personally, their heart is empty, devoid of love, that they would experience that eternal love, that ultimate love, as they come and they give their lives to you and experience salvation. Then I pray, Father, for everyone, everyone who is hearing this message, all of us, that our love for each other would grow to that stage like Naomi's love for Ruth, selfless, concerned about the other, like Ruth's love for Naomi, filled with communication based upon obedience to your truth, and like Boaz's love for Ruth, showing self-restraint, and for Naomi being all-inclusive. Help us, Lord, by this example, to demonstrate not Hollywood love, but godly love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. We invite you to come to the prayer room after the service. And um, if you haven't given your life to Jesus yet, or if you want to pray about something, or you want to just... Just...